Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Matthew, chapter uh, 26. You can find this on page 832 in the Bible under your chair. We'll be reading two short passages, Matthew 26, verses 30 through 35, and then continuing in verses 69 through 75. Matthew 26, 30 through 35. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Continuing now on page 833, verses 69 through 75. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up to him and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. I'm Mike, I'm one of the elders here at Trinity. Um, just wanted to get up. Many of you know John already, but for, for those who don't, this is John Stevenson. He's a longtime member of this church. He has been on staff before. Um, for, for many of us, um, he's been a faithful advocate in prayer. Uh, he and his wife, Donna, um, both. And um, they've just been exemplary saints and, and longtime uh, faithful, committed uh, members of this church. So um, John is a pretty experienced preacher. It's been a while since he's preached here, but I'm really grateful to, to have him preaching this morning on on Peter. Uh, so just wanted to pray for him as, as we get going. But Lord, thanks for, for John. Um, thank you for um, all the ways that he has served this church over the years um, through certainly many preaching dates, but also through, through prayer, through um, different forms of leadership, through service, um, through counseling, through all these different ways. Um, we're exceedingly grateful for him and for Donna um, and for their faithfulness to you and, and um, their example of, uh, of grace-centered discipleship. Um, I pray that you would be uh, with him this morning as he, as he preaches, that your spirit would be sort of um, preparing our hearts even now to receive um, what Matthew has for us in his gospel this morning. Thank you, Lord. We love you. Amen. Thank you, Mike. Well, good morning. 
You know, confidence is just a great thing. It helps in anything big or little. If you were interviewing J.P. Patrick or Linda Goldsberry or Danielle Stelsel for a job, one of the many reasons you would want to hire them is that they exude confidence. And you would feel confident that they were capable of doing the things you wanted them to do because of that confidence just coming out of the core of them. We really, uh, we really believe in confidence in America. Um, let's have the Senator Catherine Cortez Masto slide. I say this to women all the time, the Senator from Nevada says, if you've got the passion, you believe in making change and you've got an issue or policy or something that you want to do, believe in it. Have confidence in yourself. You can do it. Then, um, from our well-known American philosopher, Dr. Seuss, in his wonderful book, Oh, the Places You'll Go, you have brains in your head, you have feet in your shoes, you can steer yourself any direction you choose. You're on your own and you know what you know, and you are the one who will decide where to go. You know, we've seen, we've seen the athletes, we've seen the business leaders, and those with confidence, they just inspire confidence in us. And confidence seems to inspire the person themselves. The person who's confident is just able to go out and dare bigger things and do bigger things because of their confidence. And yet, we also know that sometimes confidence doesn't turn out exactly right. Uh, John made a slide, please. John Maida, who is an executive, a designer, and a technologist, says, too little confidence and you're unable to act, too much confidence and you're unable to hear. My, uh, my brother-in-law, Dale, who is now with the Lord, used to be amused when he would be driving in the snow and he would see big, obviously four-wheel drive vehicles off to the left, off to the right, off the road. Um, if we could have the next slide, uh, HoganInjury.com says, it's not uncommon for first-time owners of all-wheel drive cars to get into a car accident because they became overconfident. They get enthralled by the excellent traction when driving out of deep snow and the good acceleration in slippery road conditions. Acceleration is good until you have to brake or swerve, at which point all-wheel drive does nothing to help you. 
So we're going to encounter a man in this passage of scripture that David read for us um, who is very confident. We're encountering the apostle Peter. He is a natural leader. He is a strong person. Um, he's, a, he's probably a strong person physically, um, don't, uh, when you think of him as a fisherman, don't so much think of Mary Napier fly fishing. Um, although I, I wouldn't want to get in a fight with Mary, but, um, <laughs> but think, of a, think of a big burly guy pulling those nets with lots of fish up to the boat and pulling them in. And uh, he's always out front. Uh, all through the Gospels, for good and for ill, whatever it is, Peter's right out there with his answer, with his action. He's the leader of the band, and he has high confidence. So, um, if we can go to our goal slide, I'd like to do four things today. Um, one, and they're sort of overlapping, uh, as we'll actually do them walking through the story for the most part. But uh, we want to familiarize ourselves with um, Peter's story here, and we'll look a little bit also at the intervening passage between our two texts. Uh, Mike will preach on these later, but there's some things about Peter in there that I'd like to pick up. Um, we're going to reflect on Peter's confidence and how that confidence that had no doubt helped him in his fishing business and in many other ways actually leads him to failure. Um, we'll look very briefly, as we have opportunity, at the historical accuracy of, um, of Matthew's account. And then, most importantly, we'll examine this text to see if it offers us something to replace um, the kind of confidence that, at least in the situation Peter was in, did not take him uh, where he needed to go. So, um, if you'll keep your Bibles open, or if you've closed them, open them up to verse to uh, pages 832 and 833. Uh, if there are other passages, and there will be, those will be on the screen, but we'll be looking uh, pretty closely at a number of things here. So starting at verse 30, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out uh, onto the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. Now this is a pretty heavy statement. And this has already been an evening of heavy statements, right? He's already said earlier, one of you is going to betray me. And they go around the room and say, am I the one? Am I going to betray you? So they were in a pretty timid phase at that point. But Peter has had a little while to reflect on this, and he's gotten to a, a bit different state of mind by now. So Jesus says, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So he's, uh, Jesus is um, summarizing, more than quoting, Zechariah 13.7. If we could get that slide up. Thank you. Um, 
Zechariah says in a passage that's pretty difficult, I think, in Zechariah 13, but he says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Um, so this much is clear about the relationship of this verse and what Jesus is saying. So in Zechariah, it is said that there's a shepherd who is close to the Lord. And Jesus, as he often does with Old Testament passages, is identifying that he is that shepherd, that he fits that shepherd role. And that God himself is calling for violence to come, symbolized by a sword, violence to come and strike the shepherd even though the shepherd is a man close to him. And that when that happens, <clears throat> the sheep, excuse me, the sheep are going to scatter. And Jesus says, in essence, that's me. I am going to be struck. I'm going to be violently killed. And he has predicted this to them multiple times, or twice already in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, and when that happens, the sheep are going to scatter, which unfortunately, guys, what that means is all of you are going to abandon me. So, <clears throat> Peter uh, is not convinced. And, and Jesus goes on and says, verse 32, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So that's something very positive. Peter doesn't seem to hear that part. Um, right now, but Peter answers, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. So this is Peter's confidence. But whereas Peter's confidence when he was fishing was based on something very true about him, that he was an experienced fisherman, and his confidence when he was leading was based on something very true about him, that he was a natural leader, his confidence in this case is resting on shaky ground. Um, number one, he's not listening to Jesus. When we are so confident in ourselves that we don't believe what Jesus tells us about ourselves, we're headed down a bad road. And he's so confident in himself that he doesn't listen to the scripture that Jesus quotes, that Jesus says is applicable to this situation. And when we don't listen to what Jesus shows us in the scriptures, we're headed down a bad road. And he's so confident that he says, even if they all abandon you, you know, Lord, I've been thinking once you've been talking about all this that they, they might not hold up. But I, I will never abandon you. Whenever our confidence is so great that it makes us think we're better than everybody else, it's leading us down a bad road. And so Peter is very, very confident. And Jesus tries to help him out. Verse 34. So Jesus says to him, truly, and that's a strong word in the Gospels. It's the Greek word, amen. And it, it means listen up. 
Truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. But um, Peter isn't listening. He says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. So Peter is confident in his own strength. He has thought this through. Uh, we find out in other gospels, he's got a sword. That probably made him a little more confident. You know, if, if some guy comes up and tries to take Jesus off to the high priest, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut his head off. Um, and uh, he's, he's very, very confident. And the last sentence is important, and all the disciples said the same. So even though Peter is the highlight and in focus here in this passage, um, all the disciples are pretty much in the same boat. They, they want to be there with Jesus and for Jesus, and they're going to do it. So then Jesus takes them to a a place called Gethsemane uh, where he's going to pray. And he instructs the disciples to sit down, but then he says to his three, the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, come with me. He takes them a little further. And in verse 38, he says to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Now, these three are an interesting choice. On the one hand, they're the same three that he took to the Mount of Transfiguration. They clearly are the inner circle of the 12. Um, but they're also the three who have been the strongest and the loudest on how strong they are and how they're going to stand up for Jesus. Because not just Peter, remember some chapters back, James and John came. They were so strong they had to bring their mother with them for this request. But, <laughs> but they and their mom came and they said, uh, we want you to do something for us, Jesus. We'd really like you to commit before we tell you what it is. And Jesus wouldn't commit to that, so they had to tell him. So um, we want you to put James and John, one on your right, one on your left, when you come into your kingdom. Pretty modest proposal from mom and her two sons. Um, and Jesus says to James and John, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink out of? Without understanding, without thinking, without anything, they immediately say, yes, we are. We are able to drink the cup. Well, we're going to find out if they are. So he takes these three very confident ones and he asks them to watch with him, to stay awake. He feels the need for human companionship because he is fully man and he does not want to be fully alone at this time. He goes and he prays. Michael talk about this marvelous prayer um, in another sermon. And then in verse 40, he comes back and he finds, are they awake? No, they're sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So now he tells them, since they've gone to sleep, 
he, he, he wakes them and he tells them why he's telling them more explicitly why he wants them to stay awake. He wants them to watch and pray so that they won't enter into temptation. I don't know if you thought much about that line in the Lord's Prayer at the end that says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Um, I've become a little more aware um, as I've reached the youthful age of 61 than I used to be that I... I need to be praying that prayer and not just those words. I need to be talking with the Lord about how my pride shows up in my life and what I need to do about it. And I need to be talking with the Lord about where my lust shows up in my life and how I need to deal with it. And I need to be talking with the Lord about where my gluttony shows up and how I need to deal with it. And if I have any chance, any hope against the things that pull me down, it's in his power. It's in seeking him out and asking him for help. So that's what he's telling them to do. And in fact, he, the son of God, as you'll see in the following sermon, he's doing the same thing. He's asking for help in this hour of great trial that's coming to him, which will be far greater than their trial. So he's told them, and he goes away, and he prays again, and he comes back, and he finds them asleep again because their eyes were heavy, so they were tired. It had, it had been a huge day. Been a lot of things that had happened that day that we've heard about in Matthew. And they were tired. And they loved their comfort a whole lot. I don't know if you can relate to that. I relate to that very much. They, in fact, loved their comfort and getting some sleep while they could more than they loved listening to what Jesus told them. And so he goes away, he prays one more time, he comes back, he finds them still asleep. And I think there's one other reason why they were asleep. You see, James and John, and especially Peter, they, they weren't going to need God's help for this temptation they were going into. And Jesus had warned them, but they were strong. They were confident. They weren't going to require divine assistance. So they didn't need to stay up and lose sleep to pray. So they're asleep. So Jesus wakes them and tells them that the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up and be going. My betrayer is at hand. Judas comes with the armed mob. Um, there's an interchange, various pieces of which are recounted in various Gospels. Matthew doesn't tell us that it's Peter. Matthew tells us somebody pulls out a sword and cuts off uh, the ear of one of the people uh, who was trying to arrest Jesus. You can bet that Peter was aiming for a clean decapitation, but the guy wisely ducked um, and, uh, 
just um, got his ear cut off. And, um, and so there's this interaction. Then the crowd takes him and, um, and then... And at the end of verse 56, then all the disciples left him and fled. All these strong guys, all these confident guys, they bail out on him and abandon him. But Peter's abandonment at this point is not complete. Because as they take Jesus off in verse 57, we read in verse 58... And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, excuse me, he sat with the guards to see the end. So, Peter has bailed out to some extent, but he still wants to see what's going to happen to Jesus. And, and as so many times, he does have more courage than some of the others. Remember, it was Peter who was the one who stepped out of the boat to walk toward Jesus on the water. And though when he got his eyes off Jesus, he started sinking, we don't see anybody else out there in the water. You know, it's Peter. And so Peter sticks with him a little bit, though he made sure he didn't get arrested. But, um, but he comes and he's out in the courtyard and Jesus is being tried. We don't know. Maybe Peter can overhear some of the things going on in the trial from where he is. Not clear. Um, but now in verse um, 69, we pick up with the specific betrayal scene. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. Now, on the one hand, you know, when Jesus is in there being tried, this is obviously kind of a risky thing for somebody to be, be saying. But on the other hand, in the ancient world, not that this was at all right, but a slave girl's testimony wasn't going to be something that anybody would listen to. And here's this big burly fisherman, and he's scared. And he denied it before them all. So there were other people standing around that heard what she said, saying, I do not know what you mean. I don't even know what you mean. Now, Here's an interesting thing. Um, the word that's used here in the original um, for denied, it's very similar to the word that Jesus used when he said to Peter, you're going to deny me three times. But it's the same word that Jesus had used in one other verse in the gospel. If we could see Matthew 10, 32 to 33, Jesus had said way back, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So when Matthew's readers 
which is probably people sitting listening to the, to the gospel of Matthew being read, when they hear this word, they're going to flash back to chapter 10 and go, ooh, Peter is denying him before men. Is Peter out? This is massively serious. This is Peter, the leader of the disciples. Is he, is he, is he a goner spiritually? Looks like Judas is. Is Peter also? So it gets worse. Verse 71, and when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Now, at this point, we hear a little troubling voice in our head. It's a friend of ours who, who we've been trying to talk to about Jesus, who has been reading the Gospels carefully and ask disturbing questions. And our friend says, well, wait a minute. Who, who, who made that charge? That doesn't, that, doesn't seem, that doesn't seem consistent to me. I looked at that in all four Gospels. In the Gospel of Mark, it says the servant girl said this to him. That sounds like Mark thought it was the same one that spoke to him at first. In Matthew, it says another servant girl said it. That sounds different. In Luke, it says someone else said to him, but the someone else, I checked, is masculine in Greek, so that sounds like a man said it to him. And John, to complete the confusion, says they said it to him. So I think your people that are writing all this down are mixed up. What do you think? Well, I'm not sure I have the right solution, but I'll tell you what I think. I don't think they're mixed up. But I do think that the gospel writers, and we see this in many places, the gospel writers are interested in different information and they record different information. So, one gospel records there were two blind men healed and about the same incident, one gospel records that Bartimaeus was healed. Apparently, he was the more prominent of the two. There's no contradiction. Two were healed. One doesn't mention, but one. I think what happened in this incident is that there are a bunch of people standing around. We know there are some standing around. And it probably includes the first servant girl, the second servant girl, some guy, and they're starting to say to Peter, you're, you're one of his followers. Multiple people are saying it, and it's picked up. There are other ways that you could address these differences. But um, when you think about the Gospels and compare them, um, remember... Remember this. This is the Gospel of Matthew. In this Bible, it's a little less than 30 pages long. If we had a modern biography of Jesus, how long would it be? 
massive, right? John says at the end of his gospel, if all the things Jesus had done were written down, the world couldn't contain the books. So these gospels are very compressed. And most of the time, when we think they are telling us everything, they are telling us a summary of what happened or a summary of what was said. They don't tell us all the details, and different Gospels tell us different ones. But it doesn't mean that any of them is recording something that's not true. Um, so, it would be good if I went back to page 832. Um, so Peter denies again and this time verse 72 he denied it with an oath I don't know the man he swears that he doesn't know the man how impersonal does that sound and Jesus had said don't swear, just tell the truth. Well, Peter got it backwards. He's got, don't tell the truth, just swear. So, then after a little while, the bystanders came up, and we think the groups, this seems like it's getting bigger and more public each time, and they say, certainly, you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. So they had different accents in different locations, just like we do, and the Galilean accent, which would be sort of a hick accent. So think about somebody from rural Tennessee or something. Um, <laughs> don't say anything bad about those people from rural Tennessee, because they'll get you. Um, but... Um, but he's got an accent, and that's not the main tip-off. Some of, some of them have think they've seen him in the garden in the dim light with the torches and whatever, but they also hear it, and that's confirmatory evidence. You know, you're a Galilean, yeah, you're fitting the bill. The wanted poster, so to speak, says Galileans, you know, listen for that accent. And um, so... Um, then Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. So this time, he's cursing and swearing. Uh, the ESV says he invoked a curse on himself. That may be what that Greek word means. Um, it might mean that he invoked a curse on Jesus. It's not totally clear. But in any case, he is calling down curses to affirm that he doesn't even know the man. He has reached the bottom. But this denial begins differently than the others. Verse 74 says he began to invoke a curse. He didn't get through with everything he was going to say to complete this denial. Something happened, something that really bothered him. The rooster crowed. And at that point, it breaks through. Peter had forgotten. Oh, it was still in his brain, you know. What Jesus said was still floating around somewhere in those brain cells. But he hadn't been thinking about it. But when he hears the rooster crowing, he knows this is what Jesus said. He said, I was going to deny him. 
and I have. So, so here's the basic deal to, to try to be a little bit clearer about the confidence thing. Confidence is a great thing when it's based on reality. So if several of you in this room who are IT sorts of people, Steve Woody and, and Chris Pullman and... and Mark Sebastian is an IT-ish guy who knows a lot about computers. And others of you, if you are confident that you know how you can fix the computer situation, that's good. If I'm confident that I know how to, convince, to fix the computer situation, that's not as good. <laughs> that's trouble coming down the road. How can the problem be made worse? We're going to find out. <laughs> so the confidence depends on what's underneath it. And Peter's self-salvation project has crumbled. He's not able to handle the stress of being accused. He's at the bottom and he doesn't have anywhere to go in multiple ways. He's given up his business to follow Jesus, and now Jesus is going to be killed. He's bet everything on Jesus being the Messiah, and he still thinks he is, but he's getting ready to die, so what good is a dead Messiah to Peter? He's going to have to go home to Galilee in shame, in a shame culture. And he's got nothing. And he loves Jesus. And Jesus is going to be gone. So he's shot. And now he has denied him. Can't get any worse. Peter's shot. So my question to you now is this. Is there anything in this text to offer Peter anything better in the way of confidence than what he's had. Is there anything in this text to offer us anything better in the way of confidence about ultimate things than we might have? I think so. I think there is. Let's look back for a couple of minutes at the early part of the text. On page 832, The first thing to give Peter a very different confidence, if he had heard it, is this Zechariah quote. Because the Zechariah quote says, the crucifixion, yes, it's being done by evil people. Yes, their sin is great. But the Zechariah quote says, God has appointed violence to come against the shepherd. This isn't a mistake. This somehow, this most horrible deed in history that's getting ready to happen is God's plan. So there's room for confidence when we know that whatever is happening, 
is the plan of God. It's not the process of random processes and chance. It's not even at the end of the day the result of our own failures. God is at work, and something good is going to happen. It also goes back to the Zechariah quote in this way. The Zechariah quote says the shepherd is going to be struck. Why? Well, it doesn't make that clear. But there is a verse, and if we could have Zechariah 13.1, there is a verse, six verses before, that says, on that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So associated in that passage with the shepherd being struck down, there's also a mention that God's going to open up a fountain that will cleanse people from sin. Wouldn't you like a fountain like that? You go to that fountain, it sprays some water on you, and you're cleansed from your sins. It doesn't say what that fountain is. But we know from what Jesus has said, if I could get the next slide, we know what that is. Jesus had told them in Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's going to pour out his blood. The blood of the Savior will be the fountain. Those who trust in him will have their sins washed away. Remember William Cooper in England wrote that old hymn, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners washed beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. Where did William Cooper get that? He didn't just think up that image. Zechariah 13.1, there's a fountain for the cleansing from sin. And so there's hope for Peter if he can see it. He's not seeing it right now, but there's hope for Peter because even though he has denied Jesus, there is forgiveness if he will come back and repent. Those bitter tears that he sheds are the beginning of repentance, as Mike mentioned in a previous sermon. Peter is repentant for what he has done, and there is a fountain of forgiveness for him, and there's a fountain of forgiveness for you and me. If our sins are weighing on our soul, there's a Savior to go to and ask for forgiveness, and he will forgive anyone who sincerely comes and repents of their sin. Then there's hope because Jesus says he's going to be raised. Peter definitely doesn't catch that. And Jesus has told them before. But he said, when I am raised, there's massive hope. Peter's Messiah is going to stay dead for a few days, not forever. Peter's Messiah is alive today out of the tomb, offering salvation and life to every one of us. Peter's Messiah told those who asked him for a sign that he wouldn't give them any sign except there was going to be the sign of the prophet Jonah. That is, Jonah was in the belly of the whale. He was going to be in the earth and then come back out. And that's the sign, the resurrection 
without which you cannot explain the growth of the New Testament church. The resurrection of Jesus is the sign that says it's all true. Everything Peter had believed about Jesus, all the things Jesus had said, they're all true. And that's the source of confidence. And there's one more. Jesus says, I'm going ahead of you into Galilee. Don't you think that's strange that before the crucifixion, Jesus would say, I'm going to see you in Galilee. If you put all four gospels together, he sees them numerous times in Jerusalem after he's raised from the dead before he ever sees them in Galilee. Why would he say, I'm going to see you in Galilee when he's going to see them before that in Jerusalem? Because Galilee meant something particularly. Galilee was where he has ca had called them. Galilee was where their ministry had begun. And Galilee was where he was going to give them the great commission and tell them that he was sending them into all the world. Peter was not going to be a purposeless former fisherman. He was going to be, as Jesus had said, a fisher of people for the kingdom of God. And likewise, there is no one who knows Jesus who needs to be hopeless about purpose because Jesus has given us all a purpose to go and make disciples across the street and of all the nations. So... Uh, John Nolan, New Testament scholar, if we could get the next slide, says, the purpose of this thread, that is the repeated predictions in Matthew that the disciples will see the risen Jesus in Galilee, becomes clear in 28, through 16 through 20, where the Great Commission is, where Jesus commissions his disciples to renew his ministry, where he began in Galilee, but now expanded to embrace all peoples and supported by Jesus' presence in a supernatural manner. The return to Galilee symbolizes a fresh beginning. So, final slide. Matthew's account of Peter's denial does offer us a different kind of confidence, a sure confidence based on four things. God really is in control. He's not taken off guard by what's happening to Jesus. He's not taken off guard by Peter's denial. He's not thrown off his game by any of that. He is the sovereign God behind it all. Secondly, the Messiah is dying to pay for our sins. And there is salvation in Jesus for the things we have done and the ways we have separated ourselves from God. And the Messiah has risen. The Savior isn't dead. He's alive. He's not in the tomb. If they ever say they found Jesus' body, that's a lie. If they ever did really find Jesus' body, you can give this book up. But they don't, don't worry. It's not going to happen. You're gonna, the next time you see Jesus' body, he'll be alive. And Jesus has given them an incredible mission. And so that's the way it is for Peter. And Peter's going to learn those things. He is going 
to become a firm believer in those things as will come out in the book of Acts and his writings. He's going to believe in a hope because of the resurrection of the dead that's stronger than human confidence that's based on Jesus. And so the question to you today is what are you putting your confidence in? In the ultimate things, not not your confidence about whether you can do your job or, or that sort of thing. Your confidence about where you stand with God. Your confidence about whether your sins will be covered. Your confidence about whether you have a living Savior or you're just believing in some idea or no God or a dead God. Your confidence about your purpose. Where is your confidence? If your confidence is somewhere other than Jesus, it is going to crumble someday somewhere like Peter's did and leave you in the ditch. But if you make it to the ditch, that's just one step away from a very good place because it's usually those who are desperate, as Mike Stanzik reminded me when we were talking about this passage, it's those who are desperate and those who recognize their weakness who come to Christ for the hope that he gives. So I'll ask the worship team to return as I pray for us for a minute. Oh God, We're so much like Peter, whether we have much confidence in personality-wise or not. We put our trust in ourselves and we put our trust in things that can't work ultimately. Help us to put our trust in you and help us to see the beauty of our crucified, risen Savior who is coming back and who has given us a great mission. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen.